we are in the final week of our series, The Land of Both And. And I thought to get us going, I know we're sort of in the middle of that a summer lull before going back for the fall. I thought we should play a little bit of a game, a little bit of uh, crowd participation wherever you are this morning. Play a little bit of this or that. So if you're in the room as we're going through the this or that, raise your hand, whatever team that you're on. If you're online, put it in the comment section in the chat box there, and we'll get some good, uh, healthy debates or fights going this morning. But here's the first one. This is very, very important in a lot of households. Are you team mayo or team Miracle Whip? So before we get into this, I just got to say, I grew up in a Miracle Whip home, and then um, I got married, and uh, my wife, you know, marriage just changes you, and she was a mayo home. And so a couple weeks ago, I was like, oh, I've got it. You got to get Miracle Whip. I miss Miracle Whip. And so she got it, and I tasted it, and I'm like, oh, I, I don't miss that at all. I don't miss that at all. But anyway, who's uh, team mayo in the house this morning? So Hellman's mayo. All right, that's most of the crowd in the room. Uh, Miracle Whip, you like the zest, you're a little spicy. Oh, they're like people are afraid to put their arm up now. They're doing this a little bit. You like the zest, all right, there we go. So it's mostly miracle, or mostly mayonnaise. Anybody like hate both of them? You think they're both gross? Yeah, I knew that'd be in the room as well. All right, here's the next one, and I will judge you severely on this next one. LeBron James or Michael Jordan as the greatest of all time basketball player. LeBron James, anybody? Yeah, look, I know, I knew there'd be some people. LeBron James, Michael Jordan in the house. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He is the goat. Six rings. You don't mess with that at all. All right, here's the last one. This or that for you. Now, this is an Indiana favorite here. This is something we argue about all the time. Who's team Purdue in the house? Boiler up. Yeah, I got some of that. We got IU Hoosiers. Yeah, man, a little bit more Hoosiers in the house. And this is actually the correct answer to that question, if you ask me. And then... Some booze, some groans, and a couple go blues in the house this morning. But yeah, we'll take that down because I want people to listen to what we're actually talking about. But we're in this series, we're landing the plane in the series called The Land of Both And this morning. And we're talking about this unique cultural moment that we're in where I feel like there are battle lines drawn to every issue possible. And there is a right or wrong, and you need to pick either or to so many different issues all the time. And we've actually been leaning into a different conversation, a conversation about paradoxes, things that don't look like they make sense on the surface, but actually when we engage with the scriptures, when we engage with following Jesus, we see there's a lot of these paradoxes that we should live in, these things that aren't either or, but they're both and. And so throughout the series, we've talked about faith and doubt and about how doubt is not the enemy of faith, silence is the enemy of faith, and doubt can actually propel your faith forward. Last week, we talked about what strength and weakness is really all about. And we said that actually weak is the new strong. Uh, actually, when you admit that you have weakness and you need help, that's when you truly begin to be strong. And this morning, I'm excited. Uh, I've actually been like in fear and trembling uh, thinking about talking about this topic because we're going to talk about how we can hold convictions and live compassionately at the same time. How we can have conviction and compassion, mercy, empathy for others that disagree with those convictions at the same time. You guys, I think this is such an important conversation for us to have. In this land of either or that we feel like we're living in, how do we live with both conviction and compassion at the same time? You know, the reality is that we all have convictions about things at about every level. If you know me pretty well when it comes to music, I believe that the Irish band U2 is the greatest band since the Beatles, and that's just a conviction that I hold, and we can fight about that later if you'd like to. Uh, I believe that steak should only be prepared medium rare, and if not, you're gross and you need help. I, there's some claps in the room. Look at that. And then other people are like, that's disgusting. It's still mooing. But that's just what I believe. It's a conviction I have. I believe that the West Wing is the greatest television show of all time, and they have the Emmy Award 
rewards to show for it. And I just believe that. You know, those are some light convictions that I hold that I can spar with you about a little bit, but we also have big issue convictions, right? Things that we feel like they're hills that we would die on. We believe these things to our very core. I mean, maybe for you in the political realm, it's which party you vote for, who you're going to vote for in November, and that's all good as long as we don't vote for Kanye West. God bless him, but like, please don't put, write him in. He won't make the ballot here, but please don't write him in. God bless him. Um, that's just like a Christianese way to say he's crazy, right? When I say God bless him. That's just not okay. I shouldn't say that. Um, anyway, moving off of Kanye. Uh, here's another conviction you might have. How much screen time my child should actually have. How often they should have the phone or the iPad in front of them. That's a conviction that you might hold. And if you see other people out at a restaurant and they're glued to an iPad, you're starting to judge them. You're starting to give them that like church lady eye to the left. Like, mm, you shouldn't be doing that. That's not healthy. But you hold that kind of conviction. And there's different convictions that we hold about the way we should live. And then there's a whole other layer of convictions. And we'll just call these theological convictions, like God kind of convictions, religious, ethical convictions, like the death penalty. Is it okay for us to use the death penalty? Is that okay? Is going to war ever justified? Is that ever okay? Here's one. I mean, what's the correct biblical view of a family? What's the correct biblical view of sexuality? Uh, how, here's another one. How and when will Jesus come back? How will the end of the world actually play out? And there's lots of books with other dates in the 70s, 80s that just didn't call it right. But people argue about when and how Jesus will come back. And just a disclaimer on all of those theological issues, all those God-style arguments and convictions you might have, there are faithful Holy Spirit-filled, well-read, well-studied followers of Jesus that you can find on every corner and every side of every one of those arguments. And that's not what we're going to spend most of our time talking about this morning, is how do we really discern all those different, unique convictions inside of the Christian faith. You can believe a lot of different things and still hold Jesus at the center, and you can still be part of the family. But what I really want to lean in and talk about this morning is this reality. I mean, isn't this true? And we'll put this up on the screen. That sometimes our convictions can stand in the way of us being compassionate towards other people. Isn't it true that what we believe is right or wrong, it can actually, they, they can stand in the way, they can be a roadblock to us living compassionately, mercifully, empathetically towards other people. They can stand in the way of that. I think this happens all the time in my life, and I imagine if you're being real, uh, it happens in your life as well, where the, our convictions stand in the way of compassion. For example, I can be so judgmental towards people that don't understand or see the world the same way I do for something that I just discovered like 10 minutes earlier. Like, it's amazing how quickly I can be like, oh, they are so wrong. I can't believe they think that way. And I just had read an article or I'd had a great conversation, and my mind had just been changed. And sometimes we get so excited about something that we discover or an evolution of thought that we have that we judge other people for not seeing it and having that same discovery the way that we did. And anybody with me this morning, can we admit that sometimes we do that? Other times, our convictions get in the way of us acting compassionately because we feel so passionate about a side of an issue that we fall on. We think that this is the right thing to do. This is the right side of this issue to be on, and it's better for the world. And so we feel like everybody else is wrong, and so we have some actual self-righteousness about it. 
and we look down on them and we think that we're the white knight, the pure white knight, and they're the ones that uh, are compromised and they're not seeing the world right. And so we start to puff our chests out a little bit thinking, oh, I'm so glad that I know the truth and I fight for truth. And it's not really compassionate towards other people. The other side of this reality is that Christians, Christ followers, church people, specifically in America, we have some really bad PR when it comes to this issue as well. You know, if you type in the word, the phrase Christians are into Google, you know the very first phrases that come up to autocomplete? They're hypocritical. They're racist. They're homophobic. They're against this. They're against this. They're against this. Those are the first phrases that come up about Jesus followers. That's what the world thinks about the church, church people. We have some bad PR because people assume that our convictions, the way we hold our convictions, it makes us not very compassionate, not very merciful, not very empathetic towards other people. And not only this, but I I think if we just take a step back, we think pragmatically, Uh, The way that Christians, the way that I often, the way that church people hold our convictions out, um, they don't really convince people to live otherwise. They're not pragmatic. They don't actually work the way that we're doing it so often. And to prove this, I want to go to a quote from this guy, uh, St. John of Mayer. You might have heard of him, great guitar player. That's a joke, is John Mayer. Thanks, Mom, for laughing at the one laugh I got in the room this morning. But anyway, John Mayer said this about changing people's minds. In his song, Belief, is there anyone who ever remembers changing their mind from paint on a sign? Is there anyone who really recalls ever breaking rank at all for something someone yelled real loud one time? Can't we just admit, you guys? I mean, John Mayer's got it right. We don't really change people's minds about the convictions that we hold. We don't really invite them to our party and the way we think about convictions by yelling at them, by berating them, by holding out a sign to make them feel like they're on the wrong side of history. It doesn't work. It makes people think that Jesus followers just aren't compassionate. They're not full of the grace that they sing about, talk about all the time. And it doesn't change anybody's mind. We got a quiet room this morning. Either like I'm really hitting exactly what we're all feeling or you guys aren't with me at all. But I'll assume that you guys are with me this morning. And we admit that we've got some issues when it comes to this, this reality of belief and this reality of our convictions and being known as being compassionate. So I think that there's this either or that's set up in our culture where we often don't know how to navigate these two things, convictions and compassion. So what I'd love to do this morning is I would love to look at Jesus. I think when we're trying to figure out how to walk in this complicated world, man, the first place I go is to look at Jesus. And we're going to spend some time in this account of Jesus' life uh, written down by an eyewitness, a guy by the name of John. And I want us to dive into the way that Jesus was sort of hit with a very either-or scenario, conviction or compassion scenario, and how I think he took a different way, and he navigated the both and of conviction and compassion. I think there's some things that we can learn from him along the way. So we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 8 this morning, verses 1 through 11. And these words were recorded for us, again, by this eyewitness, this close friend of Jesus, John. And we have it preserved for us today that we can lean in and listen to what truly happened in the life of Jesus. And we're just going to pick up here in verses 1 through 3. 
This is what John records. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. Now, before we move any further, the temple during this time was like the church, but it was the only church available for a whole religion. So it was the Jewish temple, and this was the center of all of God's activities on planet Earth. And this is where Jesus would do his teaching often, and he would be saying, hey, I've got this new way of being human. I've got this new way of understanding God and following God, and he would meet at the temple. And what happened uh, at the temple is what always happened. There was a crowd that soon gathered and he sat down and he taught them. And he was, as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Now, so much is happening here. But first, I just want us to look at uh, this, this phrase, this group of people, teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees. So Jesus is in the middle of a sermon, and he is rudely interrupted by these religious teachers and the Pharisees. Now, if you've been around church at all, or if you have any kind of echo or memory or ghost of Christianity in your past, you probably think that the Pharisees, the religious teachers, they're the bad guys, right? I mean, they're the villains of the Jesus story, and we know that to be true. But if we place ourselves in the original context, the religious teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they were the rock stars. They were the pop stars. They were the One Direction. They were the Billie Eilish and all those other young artists. I don't really know who they are anymore. Uh, They were the ones that uh, Jewish boys and girls had posters of them on their wall. Everybody wanted to grow up to be a religious teacher. Everyone wanted to grow up to be a Pharisee. They were so looked at with honor and awe in this culture. So we got to think like, again, when Jesus has spars with them, Jesus is really sticking it to the man. He's really flipping the script on who was in charge and who really viewed God correctly. But you see, these, these Pharisees, they interrupt Jesus in the middle of a sermon, and they interrupt him in a scandalous way. I don't think I can speak strongly enough about the scandalous way that he is interrupted in this sermon. Because they bring forth a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. They throw her in front of the crowd. Now, a couple things that we need to note, just because I really want us to sense what was going on and pick up what John wants us to pick up. I mean, we're told that they throw a woman who had just been caught in the act of adultery. Now, I've been told in recent months I need to uh, at least give a little context because we don't use that phrase caught in adultery very often. But this woman was, was um, sleeping with somebody who was not her spouse. And they were in the middle of the act, and that's as far as I'm going to go there because this is awkward. But uh, she's thrown in the middle of a crowd right after being caught in the middle of the act of adultery. So my friends, she was not clothed. She was probably shaking with shame, and she was dragged out by a bunch of men who were leaders in this uh, religious system. She's thrown in the middle of a sermon that Jesus was giving. I mean, talk about awkward, talk about scandalous. And they throw her in front of the crowd. And in this moment, I mean, I think it's, it's really important for us to realize that this woman's life was on the line in this moment. I mean, her life was on the line. You see, she was caught in adultery, and we're told here um, that actually in the Old Testament, the law, the convictions that the Jewish people held at this time, that her life could be ended because of what she did. Here's Deuteronomy 22, 22, and this is what the religious leaders, the Pharisees, were throwing out in front of Jesus. The law says this, that if a man is discovered committing adultery, both he and the woman must die. In this way, you will purge Israel of such evil. Now, this sounds harsh. This sounds tough. But can I just make a little bit of a sidebar here that I think we need to note? Um, 
they throw the woman in front of Jesus. Where's the man? Can we be real here? Like, I don't know much, but I know it takes two to tango in this reality here. And the man is not thrown out for judgment at all, which leads me to another sidebar on the sidebar. Isn't it interesting how quickly we pick and choose who we want to be judgmental towards? And we let other people slide in the moment. But man, the people that we have issues with, oh, we will throw them on the judgment blocks so quickly. And this is what those Pharisees do. They know that this woman is in big trouble. And they're really, they're wanting to test Jesus to see how Jesus will respond to this scandalous, scandalous act. So we pick up back up in the John encounter, John chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. And you see how they were trying to trap Jesus. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus was probably like, uh, duh, right? I mean, the law of Moses says this. Deuteronomy 22, 22 says to stone her. What do you say? <laughs> what do you say should happen, Jesus? You see, they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. You see how diabolical this was that the Pharisees were doing? How evil this was? I mean, they know that this woman's life is on the line, and they're using her as a cheap ploy to try to trap Jesus into saying something that'll get him into trouble. And this is what the Pharisees are doing. I want us to see this. The Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus in an either-or scenario. They're trying to trap Jesus saying, you can have your convictions, Jesus, or you can live mercifully and compassionately towards somebody who did something. You can pick one or the other. Which one are you going to choose, Jesus? <laughs> it's got to be either-or. And you see, this was a lose-lose scenario for Jesus. I didn't quite understand this until my study this last week. But if Jesus would have picked conviction and said, yeah, this is what the law says, Deuteronomy 22, 22. I know it. My dad wrote it. I know all about it. And he, he could have said that. And, but he would have gotten in big trouble then because the Roman Empire, who was over God's people, the Jewish people during this time, they would have said that Jesus would have incited mob rule and he would have incited violence. And so Jesus would have been thrown into jail. His ministry would have been over because that would have got him in big trouble if he picked conviction and said yeah we need to stone this woman even though that's what the law said that was going to get him in big trouble with the roman empire now if he picked the other side and he chose to be like no it's all good it's all good everybody makes mistakes it's all good just let let it go let it go uh, don't hold it back anymore just let it go thank you a couple people that caught that if he did that, then he would have been called a heretic by the religious leaders because he's basically saying, well, he's not really holding to the Bible. He's not holding to what the Jewish law says, so he doesn't really trust God. You see how he was set between his convictions and compassion, and he was in his either-or situation? He would have been saying that sin really doesn't matter at all if he's just letting it go. That's what it feels like this either-or would have been. And let me just tell you this. Sin does matter. I know we don't talk about it a ton in church. We don't sing about sin all the time, but sin really does matter. You know, I think sometimes we, we get a little backwards and we, we think um, wrongly about what sin is. Maybe the most helpful definition that I've ever heard of sin was by uh, this college professor, Wesley uh, Plantinga Jr. He said this, that sin is the culpable disturbance of shalom. Sin is the culpable disturbance of shalom. Now, culpable disturbance means that we are willfully breaking something. And shalom is not just peace signs, hippy-dippy in the air. Shalom was God's dream for the world. It's everyone living in perfect harmony with God and with others. And that's God's dream for our world. And all sin is is for us willfully breaking and disturbing God's dream for the world. 
And man, sin matters. It breaks the heart of God. <laughs> and my sin matters. Your sin matters. Every time that I choose to be selfish, every time I choose to be impatient, every time I choose to put myself before my spouse or before my son or before my family, it, it, it breaks God's dream for this world. So when Jesus is caught in the middle of the conviction of, you know, the sin that uh, this woman was found in and compassion and just letting it go, I mean, this was a real tension for them, for him to manage. And I just want us to, again, remember that there is a woman laying on the ground, unclothed, thinking that she is going to have the end of her life happen in the next moments. And she's thinking, what's going to happen? Everybody around her has got rocks and they're going to end my life. And everybody's looking at Jesus. What is Jesus going to do when he's set with this dilemma, this either or in front of him? So everybody's waiting. What's Jesus going to do? What's he going to do? And then he does this and surprises everybody in verses uh, 6b. But Jesus stooped down. He got in the dirt. And he wrote in the dust with his finger. Jesus starts doodling in this intense moment. Can you imagine some people like, what is going on? He starts doodling in this intense moment. Now, what was he writing in the dust? I mean, scholars are all over the place. Some people think that Jesus was literally just doodling just to confound the religious leaders, just to get them thinking, what is he doing? Other people think that he knew the hidden sins of all these Pharisees and religious leaders, and so he was writing down sin after sin. Other scholars believe that Jesus was actually writing the names of women in the sand, in the dust, that these Pharisees had had some improprieties with as well. And he's just writing it down. Now, we don't know what he's doing, but we know he's confounding the religious leaders. He's really messing with them in this moment. <laughs> he stoops down and he writes in the dust. We'll go back into the passage here, verses 7 through 8. And as he's writing in the dust, they kept demanding an answer. Which one will you choose, compassion or conviction? And so Jesus stood up again after, as he was writing in the dust. He stood up and he probably slowly said this, all right. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. I mean, that's a mic drop of a sentence, right? <laughs> let those who have never sinned cast the first stone. And then what does he do? He stoops down again, and he wrote in the dust. I mean, I just, again, I want us to picture and put ourselves in the shoes of this woman. Her, she's probably bent over on the ground, closing her eyes, clenching her fists, thinking at any moment, this is the end of my life. But Jesus says this, and what's the woman here next? Her eyes closed, she hears this. Rock after rock drops in this intense moment. Because this is what happens in the very next verse, we're told. That when the accusers heard this from Jesus, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left with her. Can you imagine the relief? Can you imagine the confusion, the trauma that this woman is experiencing? But Jesus was the only one left with her. And Jesus got down into the dirt, into the dust, into the sand right next to her to be with her, to show her that she was for him in a deep and profound way. Hugh Halter, who's a pastor and author, he says this. I found this in a commentary. I thought it was so strong about this experience with this woman. 
Halter says this, the powerful revelation that we see here is that the God of the universe, the only one who should have genuinely been offended, who could have postured himself as judge and executioner, literally lowers himself to her level and becomes her only friend, protector, and advocate, the one on her side. You guys, Jesus, when he was stuck with what looked like an either-or of conviction and compassion, he got in the dirt, in the mess of this woman, in the trauma of this woman, not to heap more shame on her, but to lift her up and let her know that there was a different way forward. As Jesus says this in verse 10, he says, then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? And he knew, he says, didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And then Jesus said these powerful words that show us a different way from the either or, and it shows us how to navigate the both and. He says this, neither do I. Go now and leave your life of sin. I don't condemn you either. You are free from condemnation. Now go and leave your life of sin. Be freed from your past. Be freed from the trauma and the shame of this situation to live a different way. Do you guys see in that verse, Jesus shows us the both and instead of the either or. He shows us how we can hold conviction and compassion in two hands in harmony together. Because this is what he says in that last part of the verse. We'll put this up. Neither do I condemn you, which is compassion, which is mercy. Saying, I don't condemn you, which is compassion. Go now and leave your life of sin. It's conviction. It's saying that you don't have to live in this brokenness anymore. You can be free from your life of sin. Go now and live otherwise. Live in a different way, not broken down or weighed down by your hurt and the hurt that you cause yourself, your family, and others. Go now and live in a different way, a life of freedom. It's both, both and, compassion and conviction. I want us to think of compassion and conviction this way, you guys. We'll put this up next. That compassion does not weaken conviction. Compassion defines and it drives Christ-like conviction. Do you see the distinction there? So often we think that mercy and compassion, it just means that we're weakening what we believe about something. No, no, I think compassion defines this mercy that we've been shown by Jesus. It defines and it drives Christ-like conviction. They're not fighting against each other. They actually work in perfect harmony together. You know, I think of it like parenting. You know, when, when you, you have these moments when you have a kid where you get upset with them and you discipline them because ultimately you want them to be safe. You don't want them to harm themselves. And so you might raise your voice. You try to make a point out of it because you're so afraid that they're going to hurt themselves. They're going to hurt others. And so you hold tight to that conviction of what's right because you don't want them to experience pain or to inflict pain on others. Parents, you guys know what I'm talking about. We've all been there, right? I mean, just on Friday when I thought I was done with my message, um, I'm hanging out watching our uh, year-and-a-half-year-old tornado named Jack, and he's running around upstairs, and he loves making noise. He loves music. And so anything he can grab and rattles, he enjoys. Well, I mean, we have, I have right next to my uh, nightstand, I have an allergy pill bottle. I take an allergy pill every night. And it's a little guy. It's got the, you know, the medicine cap on, and you think, oh, this is completely safe. And Jack, he grab it, and he just... You know, he bangs his head when he's doing stuff because he's a rocker. It's the kind of kid that I'm raising. But he's like going like this, and I, I look away for a moment, and the next thing I look, Jack somehow, because he's Houdini, got the lid off of this allergy pill thing. And I look over, and I'm like, no, 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 
don't do that, Jack, don't do that. And I scare him. He, of course, throws the pill bottle everywhere, and there's pills everywhere. But I, I yelled at him in that moment because I was so afraid for him. And he starts crying. He thinks I'm the meanest parent ever for a little bit. And you guys might just be thinking I'm the worst parent ever for letting him play with an allergy pill bottle. Just life sometimes. Um, but anyway, in that moment, I, I was fearful for him. And that's why I got upset. And I think in the same way, but just like to the nth degree, this is how God talks to us. This is how God encourages us. And this is how God holds compassion and conviction together. Compassion does not weaken conviction. Compassion defines and it drives a Christ-like conviction because your heavenly father loves you so much. He loves you so much. He loves you exactly where you are, but he loves you way too much to just leave you there and to leave you to your own devices. He is a good father who will never, never let you walk into a place, or he never would want you to walk into a place that would cause you or other people that he loves harm. Pope Benedict, the last uh, pope of the Roman Catholic Church, he said this. I think this is so good. He says, love without truth is blind. Love without truth is blind, but truth without love, it's empty. In other words, love without truth, compassion without conviction, it's blind. It doesn't really see what's going on. It doesn't really know what's going on in the shadows, the crevices of our life that we don't really want to talk about. It doesn't really work. It's blind, but truth without love, conviction without compassion, it's empty. It's hollow. It's shallow. We desire more, and we are created for more. I think that's so true. Compassion and conviction, it's not an either or. It's a both and, you guys. So how do we navigate this both end of compassion and conviction in our modern culture, our outrage culture, our cancel culture? How do we do this? I want to give us quickly just some practical steps I think that might be helpful for us as we live this out this next week. The first is this, resist taking the bait. Resist taking the bait when you can get into an argument where your pride can flare up, where you want to take somebody down, talking about politics, talking about masks, talking about uh, Anthony Fauci, Dr. Anthony Fauci, or whatever it might be. Resist taking the bait. We all have people in our life that like wrestling and making a mess in this way, right? And I heard it said a long time ago that uh, don't ever wrestle with pigs because you'll both get dirty and the pig enjoys it. I think that is really good. I think it's somewhere in Proverbs, probably. No, it's not, not at all. But resist taking the bait to get into those fights because it just doesn't actually work. You don't have to respond to everything that you disagree with. Let me say that again. You don't have to respond to everything you disagree with. I think a lot of times people feel like they've got to stick uh, in their head into a fight all the time because they see a verse like this in Ephesians 4, uh, Paul writing to this church in Ephesus, and he says this in 4.15. He says, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. We will speak the truth in love. That's just what I'm doing, Joel. I'm just speaking the truth in love. And I think people would use that posture, but the reality is that phrase, truth and love, that word love is the Greek word phileo, which means deep bond and friendship, togetherness with the person. And I would venture to say a lot of times when people are saying, I'm just speaking the truth in love, uh, they're not really in a relationship and a deep bond and friendship with the person that they're wanting to fight with. They might see their name every now and again, or they might have gone to high school with them. And I think Paul would say, and this is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about speaking the truth and love to those who know that you are for them and you're with them no matter what. Let me ask you this question, friends. The people that we might argue with, fight with, look down at, do they know that we're for them? Do they know that we want them to flourish? Do they know that we would do anything for them? 
Or do they just think we're being snarky? Do they think we're just being self-righteous? Do they think we're just being exclusive to them? Do they know that you are for them? (laughs) They probably don't. So my friends, hear me in this. You are not called to be God's policemen in this world. Issuing out tickets, issuing out waivers for other people's sins, their misdeeds. You are not called to be his policeman. So the next time you want to say something, I just want to encourage you to... Maybe that's the most spiritual Jesus-following thing you can do this next week is just be like, I want to know... Because you don't need to take the bait. The next challenge I want to give you is this. That I would challenge you to put the you in front of your view. In other words, when you're having a heated discussion or you're starting to be self-righteous or judgmental towards somebody, put them in front and more important, making sure they're more important than your view on the issue. One of the most foundational Christian theologies is that every single human being who ever lived was created in the image of God with God's thumbprint on their life. They are sacred. They are worthy, not because they've done anything right or done nothing wrong, but because God says so. My friends, you've never made eye contact with a human being who Jesus wasn't madly in love with. So when you have disagreements, man, we need to make sure that we have a posture of humility and love before we take a position of saying that they are wrong and we are right. Put them and their sacred nature that God gives them in front of your view. Andy Stanley says it this way. He says, don't make a point at the expense of making a difference. Don't make your point, your mic drop moment, your burn moment that might feel really good. Don't make a point at the expense of making a difference in this person's life. Because again, nobody really changes their mind because they were scolded, right? (laughs) Nobody really changes their mind because they were taught to think that they were dumb. Don't make a point at the expense of making a difference. And the last challenge I want to give you is this, that we need to begin to be people that listen to understand If you guys are anything like me, uh, I so often, when I'm in a conversation with somebody I disagree with, I'm not listening to understand what they're saying. I'm listening to find a hole in their argument so that I can come back and smack down with my truth and feel really good for a couple seconds before I feel guilty again. I don't listen to understand. I listen to respond often. And I think we can all fall into this trap. I want to encourage us to be a group of people who don't do that, that I just want to call it this, I want to listen incarnationally. And I know that sounds big and theological in this way, but the incarnation is this theological principle that Jesus left the splendors of heaven and he became a human being. God put in a body, he was a full human man. And he left the splendors of heaven to walk in our shoes and understand what was going on in our life. And I think if we can take that kind of posture and put it into the way that we listen to one another, oh, we would be a whole lot further down the road. Don't listen to respond, but listen to understand, to listen incarnationally. You know, here's some steps in listening incarnationally, to listen, to understand. Give the speaker your full attention. Not thinking about the holes in their argument, not looking at our phone or looking something up to disprove them. No, give the speaker your full attention. And then step into the speaker's shoes. Ask the question, what would it be like to see the world through their eyes? Or at least have the empathy to be like, oh, that's why they see the world this way. If I had walked in their shoes, I would probably see the world their way as well. And then lastly, avoid judging them. Don't judge them. You can judge the content of their argument, but don't judge them as people. Remember that they are made in the image of God just like you. Listen to understand, not to respond, not to smack down, not to have your mic drop moment. That's how you can hold conviction and compassion together. My friends, 
Christians, and maybe I'm just speaking to people that are followers of Jesus in the room this morning, we are called to unity, but not uniformity. You guys you know what I'm saying when I say that? Like, we're called to unity, not uniformity. There are diverse uh, choices that each and every one of us make. I mean, I'm sure that we have people in the room and watching online that vote for members of both major political parties that drive different kind of vehicles, that listen to different kind of, of music, that think differently on theological issues, on how the world should be ordered all across the board. But we can still have unity around the main thing by keeping Jesus the main thing. And Bridgeway, I mean, it is a, a group of people, if you're new to us or if you've been with us for a while, Bridgeway is a group of people that we are a hodgepodge, hot mess, ragtag group of people that don't have it all together at all, and we might have lots of different opinions, but we come together around the main thing, and that is Jesus who died, who rose again, who invites us into his rescue mission of helping people connect with him in this world and for all of eternity. So we're called to unity around that. Let's make the major things major and the minor things minor and take steps forward. And let's be people that look at our diverse world of opinions and views, and we offer them compassion-based convictions instead of finger-wagging convictions about who we think that Jesus is and who they're invited to be. Compassion and conviction. It's not an either-or. It's a both-and my friends, let's be a group of people this next week that listen to understand, that put the person before our view and honoring the person first before getting our view across is the most important thing. And let's resist taking the bait and wrestling with pigs when it doesn't do anybody any good. Wouldn't the world just feel like 3% more peaceful? Can you just imagine? Let's be a part of that. That's what Jesus is inviting us into.